Where is God when nothing is going our way? Where is God when there seems to be no end in sight to some particular hardship or trial? Or when we're confronted yet again with another difficult setback? I mean, does God even care? Does he actually hear our prayers for help, for guidance, for relief? Really, is there even a point to prayer? Or for that matter, faith or obedience? Now, if you're wrestling with questions like these, we're really glad that you're here today because what we have before us this morning is a story of a young man named Joseph who saw a tremendous amount of suffering in a short amount of time. And he was very likely confronted with all those questions and then some. So how much did Joseph suffer? Let me just quickly recap. It all started with uh, Joseph's own brothers out of murderous jealousy toward him, entrapping him, throwing him into a pit, and leaving him there to die. Now somehow, Joseph was spared, but only to be man-napped and then immediately sold into slavery in a faraway foreign land, Egypt, which was far away from everything he knew and loved. Can you imagine? And then, just as things seem to start looking up for Joseph, he's falsely accused of a heinous crime by his master's wife, which he's completely innocent of, by the way. But still, the accusation is enough to get him thrown into prison with no end in sight. And that's where we meet Joseph today. An innocent man, well acquainted with sorrow, unjustly imprisoned, and numbered with the transgressors. Like I said, there was no end in sight for him, no hope for justice or freedom whatsoever because in Egypt, the last person that was going to get a fair trial or hearing was someone who was a nobody, a nobody Hebrew slave like him, a, a person of zero status or consequence. It's even surprising that we're hearing about him today. You see, if anyone had good reason to wonder where God was, it was Joseph. And even though Joseph might have seemed despised and rejected by men, he certainly was not by God. Because the scriptures tell us exactly where God was in the midst of all of Joseph's afflictions. And I get the sense that Joseph had some understanding of this as well, which was what ultimately preserved him in the midst of all his trials. Look with me right before chapter 40. Genesis chapter 39, verse 20. 39, verse 20. Where we're told the answer about where God was in the midst of Joseph's darkest chapter in life. 39, 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So where was the Lord in the midst of Joseph's suffering? We're told the answer two times so that we don't miss it. The Lord was with 
him. Put another way, God Almighty was there, imprisoned, along with Joseph. He entered into that very place with him, bearing with him the curse and the shame. But God was also with Joseph, empowering him in the midst of it all. Because we're told the Lord empowered Joseph not only to survive, but whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. But succeed at what exactly? Was it just about, you know, excelling at managing the prison's uh, affairs? No, actually, there was an even greater work, a greater success that God was calling Joseph to, a work that would eventually bring God's mercy to bear upon the whole earth. So it's here that I'd like to preview the three points I'd like to make from our passage today. Let me go ahead and read them real quick. The first one is, God is with us to reveal his judgment. And the next one, God is with us to reveal his peace. And the final, God is with us through his exalted Savior. Now again, our first point is God is with us to reveal his judgment. And this all begins in chapter 40 where we're told about two new guests who have arrived to join Joseph in prison. They're actually two former high-ranking Egyptian officials from Pharaoh's very own court, the chief cupbearer and baker. Let's read about them in uh, chapter 40, verse 1. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now, it's important to note that these titles, uh, cupbearer and baker, there was a lot more to their positions than just overseeing Pharaoh's bread and wine. In fact, their role was probably much more like what the cabinet is for our president, meaning they were likely very high-ranking advisors or counselors to Pharaoh. But the point is, here they are in prison because they really screwed up, right? In fact, they did something that really enraged Pharaoh. We're never told exactly what they did, but we know it's serious because the verb translated in verse 1 as committed an offense can also be translated as they sinned against their Lord, the king of Egypt. So unlike Joseph, these two officials appear to have some actual cause for their prison time. And since they're guilty of something, we can also imagine that they are quite anxious about their future. And then, all of a sudden, on the same night, they each have these eerily similar dreams. But they can't make any sense of them. Which you can imagine leaves them quite distraught. And here's how Joseph finds them in the morning. Look at uh, chapter 40, verse 6. Verse 6. When, jo when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, 
and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So once again, we have two men, one's high and mighty at the top of the world, now humiliated, brought low by their sin. But who happens to come along and show them some basic compassion, some sympathy? Joseph asked them this question, why are your faces downcast today? Let's pause here and consider how unusual this seemingly basic, you know, kind word actually was. Why would Joseph, a Hebrew, unjustly imprisoned, show any concern at all toward these guilty failures who actually represent the system, the government, that's responsible for all his oppression? Why in the world would Joseph show any love to his enemies like this? Now, just so you know, the real reason why we're taking any interest in Joseph's life and why we believe it's been preserved for us here in the scriptures is because when we look at Joseph, what we can often see are powerful, preparatory glimmers of Jesus. Because in many ways, Joseph prefigures and points us ahead so that we can recognize Jesus. So it's actually quite fitting that while Jesus is ultimately revealed to be the Son of God, he enters into the world as none other than a son of Joseph. That was the name of his earthly father, right? But returning to Joseph's original question, why are your faces downcast today? Which, by the way, actually kicks off this process it's a catalyst that eventually leads to Joseph's release and exaltation. Just this simple question of concern. Consider that and how God might work through simple words of concern. Now, the officials initially respond to the question pretty hopelessly. Verse 8, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Sounds so pitiful. Here they are sensing that these dreams hold some, some vital, hidden meaning that they desperately need to understand, but they ultimately can't make any sense of it on their own. And this leads to the first important thing that Joseph, God's appointed messenger, wants these two despairing men to understand about who God is. Verse 8, And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And the word translated interpretations here also carries the, the, the sense of true meaning, insight, unlocking the answer, the solution. What Joseph wants us to know is that God is the source of all these things. Ultimately, no one and nothing else can impart the true meaning of things to us. It's otherwise a fool's gambit to try to look for it anywhere else. So Joseph goes on to request, right? Please tell them to me. As if he knows his job is to be a faithful herald 
a passer-on of God's message. And this is what we readers know, right? Is that it's God himself who has a message for these Egyptians. Why he has any concern for them whatsoever is, is something of a mystery to us. But it's no accident that Joseph is here. So what is the content of God's message for them from these dreams? Well, it's actually a message about a day of judgment. That's coming for each of them. Where the outcome will be life or death. Now, as the story goes, first the chief cupbearer goes on to tell his dream to Joseph. And then Joseph gives a solution or interpretation for the dream's meaning. And it's really good news. In three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up the cupbearer and free him and restore him to his office. You can imagine how, how just happy and elated the cupbearer was to hear this. And it's here that Joseph asks a special favor of the cupbearer, which, once again, he shares a little bit of his own story in verse 14. Verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now right after this, the chief baker, he's excited, he's liking what he's hearing, asked Joseph to interpret his dream. But this interpretation is not as hopeful. Joseph's interpretation for the baker in verse 18 goes like this. Verse 18, And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So Joseph reveals that in three days, both sinners will have their heads lifted up before their king. And one transgressor will be restored, reconciled, as if his sins aren't being held against him. But the other will be condemned, held accountable, and then pierced, and then exposed and left to die on a tree. And everything happens just as Joseph said it would. Pharaoh, at his birthday party, of all places, maybe after uh, cake and presents, he restores the cupbearer, and on that very same day, executes the baker. One was spared, and the other was not, even though they seem to have both sinned against their king, which leaves us readers with this perplexing question, how is it that this turns out this way? How is it that one sinner lives and the other dies? We'll come back to this. But in light of Christ, this entire story echoes in many ways a, a, an interesting scene from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, where we find John deeply troubled, weeping, and doing so on account of there being no one worthy in heaven or on earth to unlock a certain holy scroll whose precious contents seem tragically lost, like they'll remain a, a mystery forever. That is, until one of the elders 
chimes in and he proclaims, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's Revelation 5.5. This lion of Judah, the root of David, is none other than the God King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, he alone is worthy to unlock this scroll, to interpret it. But the only thing is, once Jesus begins to open this scroll, here's what kicks off. The beginning of the end of history. <laughs> the last days where the judgment of all the living and the dead is about to soon take place. It's quite a scary scene. And Jesus will be the one to judge Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. This is how he explains it to uh, Gentiles that are unfamiliar with the scriptures. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, uh, Jesus' resurrection is God's way of telling us that the judgment day is officially coming for us all. Every single one of us today. We're all living at the tail end of history, standing, as it were, completely exposed as the people that we really are, not the people that we'd like to think of ourselves as being. In judgment before our holy maker who holds the very keys to life and death thus what we're all desperately in need of then is a way to get right with God perhaps a message that shows us how we might make peace with him before it's too late and this leads us to our second point today which is God is with us to reveal his peace. God is with us to reveal his peace. Now, here's the amazing thing. Many of us will hear about life and death and the judgment to come and will promptly walk out of here and functionally forget it all. Living as practical atheists, going about much of life as if there's no God at all, much less a day of judgment to come. It's kind of a self-description, by the way. And you know what, what is so interesting? What we find as we return to Joseph's story, back to chapter 40, what we find is a shockingly forgetful man. Right? Because we're told that the chief cupbearer, after hearing God's word, after having his life mercifully spared, ends up completely forgetting about Joseph as if it didn't happen at all. Look again with me at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We're also wondering, like, how could that happen? How could that happen? Well, look in the mirror. <laughs> what a gut ripper for Joseph, though. 
Then he's stuck in prison for two more years as a result. And yet, even though Joseph may have been despised and forgotten by man, he wasn't forgotten by the Lord. He's always faithful to remember his people. And he was with Joseph still. In part because Joseph had more work to do as God's messenger. That work wasn't done yet. Because God, not only was he revealing his judgment through Joseph, now he was about to reveal his plan for worldwide rescue. To offer grace to Egypt, the whole earth, we're told. This time through dreams given to Pharaoh himself. And they were some strange dreams, weren't they? The first one started with seven fat and healthy cows showing up by the, by the Nile River. And then all of a sudden, seven ugly and thin cows showing up. And to Pharaoh's kind of disgust and shock, these thin cows are cannibals. They eat up the other seven cows. He suddenly wakes up, somehow falls back asleep. But Pharaoh dreams again about seven plump and good ears of grain that come out of a stalk, which are followed by seven sickly thin ears of grain. And the thin ears, again, eat up the fat, healthy ones. And after these dreams, which actually they're more uh, like nightmares, Pharaoh wakes up. He's troubled. He's confused. Very much like how the officers responded to their dreams earlier. But unlike them, Pharaoh has options. He's got resources. He's going to get someone to interpret these dreams. Namely, he calls up all the great magicians and wise men of Egypt. And their claim to fame, by the way, is that they have expert insight. This is, what they, this is how they market themselves. They have expert insight into the divine realms. Uh, they're supposed to be like the dream scientists. They know how to decipher all the uh, divine communication locked in these dreams that come from the spiritual realm. That's how they earn their keep. But all of them fall miserably short. (laughs) They fail to solve the riddle of Pharaoh's dreams, and now Pharaoh is basically up the Nile without a paddle. I'm sorry, I had to throw that in there. And things seem hopeless. Who can open this scroll for me? Anyone? Then finally, the chief cupbearer actually remembers something. The young Hebrew slave who correctly and prophetically interpreted his dream in his time of trouble. Let's look at verse 9 of chapter 41. Chapter 41, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. What an interesting turn of events here. As the cupbearer remembers his offenses, which can also be translated as sins, he suddenly remembers Joseph who spoke God's solution to him and essentially prophesied his pardon. Now, after hearing the cupbearer's testimony, Pharaoh acts right away and immediately calls Joseph up from the pit of prison and into his presence. Let's read from verse 14 
Verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Once again, Joseph is quick to remind Pharaoh that he deserves no credit or glory for this ability to interpret dreams because ultimately it's a gift of God given to him from God who alone deserves all the glory. It's a bit unlike... uh, other messengers of God who might be stealing glory or enriching themselves as God's messengers. Beware of such men. Actually, uh, a more literal translation of Joseph's response concerning the nature of God and the, the will of God in verse 16 could go something like this. It's not in me. It is God that will answer Pharaoh with peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom, which is often translated wholeness, well-being. And only God can speak such peace to Pharaoh. Is he willing? Is he willing? Turns out he is. Because God's peace not only gets extended to Pharaoh, but the whole earth including, eventually, as we'll see, Joseph's own long-lost, very messed-up family. So, how does God reveal his peace through Joseph? Once again, Pharaoh recounts to Joseph his dreams, along with uh, his own nightmarish reactions to them, and then Joseph deciphers the message, explaining that these two dreams are actually one, and that both the cows and the ears of grain represent seven years of epic harvests that are about to be followed by seven years of epic famine. And in all this, we get this amazing glimpse of God's powerful and sovereign hand over history and its outworking or interpretation. And it's it's this outworking of peace, of shalom. But that doesn't mean Pharaoh gets to just sit back and be passive and receive it. No, he has to act. He has to respond to this message. In fact, there's a challenge to to Pharaoh right away to act on this revelation, to take action through faith because it's, it's coming. It's coming right away. He has to move on this insight that's been given to him. And here's another surprising thing, I think, about God's revelation about this famine to come. What it did was it put almighty Pharaoh, the king of one of the the, the greatest nations of the the, the world at that time, it put him somewhere he wasn't used to being. He was helpless. He was humbled. No other options. Basically in the same position as the lowliest person in the world. Because if this famine is indeed coming, no one, not even kings, 
will be able to escape or survive seven years without food. <laughs> All right? It's literally like a cloud of death that is moving over and about to consume everything and everyone in its path. So it means Pharaoh has a decision. Who will Pharaoh trust and thus submit his affairs to? Is he going to go back to the magicians, give them you know, another, another crack at it? Or is he going to actually trust the true and living God who has sent a faithful, humble messenger? And this leads us to our third and final point, which is God is with us through his exalted Savior. God is with us through his exalted Savior. Something like a miracle actually takes place when Pharaoh believes God's message through Joseph. And this leads, you know, to to Pharaoh actually being able to see Joseph as he truly is for the first time. Recognizes that Joseph is God's humble servant. God has been planning all along to exalt the suffering servant that was going to be raised up from the pit, the last one that was going to all of a sudden be made first. Look with me at at this just exaltation of the humble servant, Joseph, in uh, 41 verse 39. 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Do you guys remember way back in chapter 37 about uh, the dreams that Joseph had? Where his whole family, even the moon and the stars, were bowing down to him? Well, look at verse uh, 41, 41, chapter 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So where was God through Joseph's journey to the pit? During the enslavement, during the temptation, the slander, and then a second journey to the pit of prison, where was God? The Lord was with him the whole time working all things out for good for Joseph, and not just him, not just to bless him, but the entire world. Verse 45, here's how the the, the chapter closes. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. 
Thanks to God's spirit of wisdom and grace working in and through Joseph, all the earth would have bread to survive this famine. And I love Pharaoh's answer to the needy, famished people. Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So the question to us now is, is there anyone like Joseph that God has sent to whom we needy and famished people must go? Is there anyone that's wiser than Joseph where what he says to us we should do? Because his words are the very words of eternal life. Is there anyone else who has entered into our trouble in order to proclaim God's peace to us, reconciling us to God as well as to one another? Good news is yes. Because here's what Jesus has done according to Ephesians chapter 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Divided people, alienated from God and from one another, Jesus came and proclaimed peace. And this is why it's ultimately Jesus to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And thankfully, God is still speaking through him. Because in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that we're living in the last days. But it is Jesus himself who now proclaims God's message to us of coming judgment, as well as the offer of peace. Because Jesus happens to also be the perfect revelation of God. That is, he's the full and perfect disclosure or interpretation of God himself. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And because Jesus has once and for all made purification for sins, this is how sinners can be reconciled. Your sin need not lead to death. And that's where it always leads otherwise. But it does not need to lead to death because Jesus has died in your place. He's already paid the penalty on your behalf. He was the one that was pierced on a tree. Accursed. But after making purification for sins, Jesus rose. And then he called his people together for an important task, a task that he started, which he alone has the authority and power to make succeed. All right, Matthew 28, here's what he says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's all that's left to do. Go to Jesus. What he says to you, do. All right? But there's one more thing. Before Christ Jesus headed to the cross, he hosted a meal for his disciples. And he humbled himself before them, serving them as none other than their cupbearer. Jesus would offer them a cup like no other, one that represented his very own blood, shed for them for the forgiveness of sins. And along with that cup, Jesus would also offer bread to his disciples. And just as God provided bread for the world through Joseph, here's what Jesus declared about the bread that he offers us. Jesus declares, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now we're about to come to the Lord's table to remember the one who first remembered us, who has given us the unmatched high calling to be his humble heralds wherever he's put us, whether it be in the pit or in the very throne room. And let us pursue this. Let us answer this call, never forgetting the promise that he's given for this task. That in this life, whatever it may bring, behold, he is with us always to the end of the age. Amen.